It was an interesting week to be preparing for the topic that we're in when we come to Deuteronomy this week. You see, early in the week was International Women's Day, and there was wonderful, thoughtful writing about the ways in which we pursue gender equity and elevate women globally. Later in the week, the fundamentalist sector of United States faith was reminded again of the lingering remnants of complementarianism and its not-so-neutral effects when John MacArthur's church um, was back in the spotlight because 20 years earlier, MacArthur had publicly shamed a woman for maligning her husband. The video of the shaming was going around on the internet. The husband's deeds are such that he is now serving over 20 years in prison. MacArthur has not apologized. The board of the church has not in any way sought to make right what they did. And that contrast is such a fascinating thing to me because what it shows is how a faith community that gets locked in to seeing a passage like today's as a timestamp, as a model, will inevitably bring harm instead of the life that God would seek. On a more personal note, it got me thinking about a couple of instances from when I was an adolescent. One was when I was about 15 and our youth group went on a retreat down at a um, like hotel conference center kind of thing in San Diego, California. That was super fun to not have it be at camp. I remember that feeling really special. But one of the reasons I remember that particular retreat was that the speaker was a woman, a youth pastor named Kara Powell from Lake Avenue Congregational in Pasadena, California. I had never seen a woman youth pastor at that point in my life. But I had, for a couple of years now, been carrying the idea that maybe I would want to do ministry someday. Seeing Kara speak was incredibly important for me. Not because her words were unique from any other youth pastor's words. They were the same wonderful kinds of words about Jesus that any speaker would deliver. But that was the point, that a woman was giving the same wonderful words about Jesus that any other speaker might give in their own style. And I really needed to see that. Fast forward a couple years, but I was still a high school youth group kid when one youth ministry volunteer, bless his pointy head, once said to me, I don't know how you're going to get married. I was utterly confused. I had no idea what he meant, but he went on to say, well, because the man is the spiritual leader of the house, right? And you are so strong. I don't know how anyone's going to be able to marry you. I had um, at that point, honestly, literally never heard the phrase, the man is the spiritual leader of the home. That was a new idea to me. I didn't really know what he meant by it. And I didn't really know what to say next. But I remember it sort of meaning that something might be wrong with me, at least in his mind. All this to say that we have come to a challenging section of Deuteronomy today and its implications, people who have read it well or read it poorly, they reach all the way into today. We're going to have to hold two questions together at once as we go into this. The first being, how do we read these verses well? And the second being, how do we engage well with any verses that we find so culturally distant that they're offensive? And... Verses that are culturally distant and yet have been read as if they are timeless, creating pain and harm. We're diving into Deuteronomy chapter 22, starting in verse 13. Suppose a man marries a woman, but after lying with her, he dislikes her and makes up charges against her, slandering her by saying, I married this woman, but when I lay with her, I did not find evidence of her virginity. 
The father of the young woman and her mother shall then submit the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. The father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has made up charges against her saying, I did not find evidence of your daughter's virginity, but here is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. Then they shall spread out the cloth before the elders of the town. So that's all embarrassing. All right, what's going on here? In a patriarchal culture, marriage is transacted between a father and a potential husband. And a major concern relates to honorable or appropriate behavior of the woman. While we might tend to approach these verses from a morality perspective, scholars remind us that it's more accurate to say that the concern is about the children of the husband really belonging to him. You may remember that offspring are very important in the ancient Near East. One, for Israelites, they are a fulfillment of the command to be fruitful and fill the earth. But also, more broadly, they are a means by which a man lives on after death. In fact, if you're curious about that in particular, I just remind you that Curtis did a backdrop episode about life, death, and the afterlife in the ancient Near East to just help us get our bearings on that concept. And so there is a concern with being able to ensure that a man's children are indeed his own. And that's a huge part of why the woman's virginity mattered. Now, the chapter also goes on with details for handling rape and adultery. All of them fundamentally operate in the same patriarchal way. The husband and the father of the woman are the ones who negotiate whatever happens next. So what do we do with that? Well, first, we do what we just did. We time travel, so to speak. We try to get our bearings in terms of this community and this culture, its values and its norms. It's like being an observer of ancient Israel through our study. Now, while this is our starting point, it's not our ending. Because we can both understand these texts and dislike them. But if we only dislike them and never enter into them, I think we will miss an opportunity to see some important things that are really helpful and hopeful for us today. We miss the chance to realize that there is a through line in scripture that Even these events connect later on down the line and into today in ways that are actually very positive. So with these passages to start, what we will notice if we continue to enter in is that even in the midst of all these patriarchal systems, we find a level of protection for women you wouldn't expect. It is hard to read that a woman was to forever be wed to a man who raped her. But at the time, the alternative was to be discarded and left destitute. Or take the verses that we began with again. Pick up in verse 18, and it says, The elders of the town will take the man and punish him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver, which they shall give to the young woman's father, because he has slandered a virgin of Israel. She shall remain his wife. He shall not be permitted to divorce her as long as he lives. If, however, this charge is true, that evidence of the young woman's virginity was not found, then they shall bring the young woman out to the entrance of her father's house, and the men of her town shall stone her to death because she committed a disgraceful act in Israel by prostituting herself in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay, so the man will be both fined and beaten for lying. What he is fined is twice the bride price he gained from the woman's parents. It's a strong deterrent from simply tossing a woman aside and using her virginity as an excuse to do so. 
What's more, although the idea of stoning a woman for not being a virgin is, again, rightfully something that offends us. Rabbis note that in all cases of capital punishment, there had to be two witnesses, meaning this was actually impossible, which begets the question, why have it at all? But what if it's meant to show the men, hey, look, all the bases are covered. If this comes up, what if it preempts the, but what about that might get asked and shows that everything is in order? Now, Noticing the limits and protections that are also part of these verses help us do the second thing that we do with hard and culturally distant biblical texts. We look and see if it points us anywhere. Think about a kid doing a dot-to-dot puzzle. They always start at dot one and then they go looking for dot two. Where is it? Which direction should they look to find it and draw a line that connects one to the other? Reading hard texts is a bit like that. Entering into the culture is dot one, and then we look around and figure out if it points us towards anything that can be dot two. And to us, these passages seem like all patriarchy at first glance, but digging in shows us how there are at least these limits, which is interesting. It shows something unexpected, how these verses are in fact moving people in a patriarchal culture closer to mutuality. Slowly, but that's not about the goal. That's about God's incredible patience and willingness to work within specific times and places and cultures. It's a habit God has to be highly contextual. Sometimes we wish God weren't, but it's quite true that God tends to do that. So we are in a similar space in these verses that we were in the passages from last week, which Curtis spoke about, the ones that related to power, like limiting a king's horses. Those verses moved people in a hierarchical culture, closer to mutuality, by giving very specific boundaries to the powerful. So too, these verses are moving a patriarchal culture closer to mutuality by giving very specific boundaries to the powerful, to the men. They point towards mutuality. Even if that dot is very far away, it's still the direction we can look. So now consider Jesus stepping in as a rabbi and speaking to this topic. Matthew 19, 3 says that some Pharisees came to him and to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Okay, now wait, we just saw that there are limits to when a man can divorce from the jump because divorcing a woman made her vulnerable to destitution. Verse four, Jesus answered, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave their father and mother and be joined to their wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, let what God has joined together not be separated. So Jesus gives us another dot to connect. The overwhelming goodness and mutuality that God intends at creation. Jesus doesn't point back to the patriarchal laws. He points back to the egalitarian design for marriage. Two people whose covenant to one another is akin to becoming a one person. He points back to the oneness that makes them safe and secure. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, It was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. 
So there it is again, Jesus noticing God's willingness to enter within culture such that Moses gives a direction that wasn't even actually God's ideal. And yet God was willing out of patience and grace to allow for it to be different. As long as they could keep pointing in the direction they should go. So we have a dot from Jesus, not only pointing backwards to the mutuality of creation in its abundant goodness, but also a dot pointing forwards saying these are the new understandings about marriage and covenant there. It moves again closer to what should be. Men should not just go scurrying about divorcing willy-nilly. And you get the sense they kind of think they can in the Pharisees' response. They said, if this is such a case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. (laughs) I have one more example for us. But before I talk about it, I want us to see what Jesus has done here. He's reminded them that the way Moses told Israel to do these things wasn't the model to copy. It was the solution for their time, place, culture, and situation. Jesus, and according to Jesus, Moses too, point back to the ideal and then forward to a better next step. The hope is to continue along in the direction that each of these things points us toward. All too often, we've gotten locked into them as if they're ideal and timeless. But Jesus here is saying, yeah, what Moses says, but because Moses was right, also more. Not just staying where Moses was, but moving towards where Moses pointed. Then Paul will come along and say, Yes, to what Jesus says, and also, since Jesus is right, there's more. Jesus is pointing in a direction. Let's move that way. And that's what we should keep in mind as we read Galatians 3.26. Paul gives us the next dot down the line that we look towards and move towards when he says, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. All of you are one. The mutuality that Paul is inviting the community into builds on Jesus being right about how there should be limits to the power of patriarchy in order to become more mutual. How Moses put limits on the power of patriarchy in order to become more mutual. Each time the community moves towards mutuality, equality, equity, we move closer to the heart of God. Because what God would dream is that each person made in God's image and bearing that image would go into the world being just who God made them to be. And that they would live in their part of the world faithfully to God without limits placed upon them for their gender identity. And I can't help but wonder, Are these the greater things? In John 14, Jesus has this conversation with his disciples about life after Jesus isn't with them, about Jesus as a true representative of God. You see, the question of Jesus's validity is tied up with the question of his right use of power and authority. As he teaches and does signs, he's claiming to faithfully speak and act on God's behalf. He's saying he's a valid representative for God, but then he goes further saying his followers won't just represent Jesus, represent God to the world in a good, but not as good as the original kind of way, like a movie sequel. Instead, 
animated by Jesus's love, life, teachings, and works, Jesus's followers will go beyond even what they've experienced so far. Jesus says, believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And here's what I wonder. What if radical mutuality is a greater thing? What if the powerful looking to empower others so they flourish is a greater thing? What if our communities being more equitable than generations before us is a greater thing? Not because they were all wrong, but because we've all done our best to look around and look ahead in the direction God points us so that we can move to the next dot together. What if becoming a community that dismantles patriarchy and pursues equity such that every person can flourish as whoever God made them to be is a greater thing. When we were together live as a community, we turned to respond by telling stories. We told stories of God working in the lives of women. We told stories of communities pursuing equity for the sake of God's glory. Not to praise those women, nor to praise those communities, but to praise the God who has made each person uniquely themselves. To activate holy imagination for how we can keep making space for each person to come to life in God's love and then live that out as exactly who they are. Not worrying about having to fit a predefined mold, but rather being able to come into the fullness of whoever God has asked them to be, with their church cheering them on. I hope that as you go, you might have a moment to reflect in the same way. Can you thank God for a woman that has helped you know God better? Or for a community that has supported gender equity so that people can live exactly as they are without having to fit in a box? Personally, Curtis and I come from that kind of faith community. And around the time that he and I were dating and getting ready to get married, we were well aware that not only did I perhaps not fit a stereotypically feminine and home-based kind of model for women, but Curtis also in some ways didn't fit a stereotypical masculine and protector-provider sort of model for men. It just wasn't who we were. But by being in a community where both men and women had lots of freedom to be themselves, so too we felt lots of freedom to be ourselves. We knew that what marked our marriage most of all was covenant to one another, mutuality and respect for one another. And then we could solve how to be a family ourselves. That means that Curtis does all our cooking, but I do the cleaning. It means Curtis does all our laundry, but I do most school pickups and kid doctor appointments. We've divided the labor according to our skills and our strengths and our abilities. And neither of us quite fits a mold for what a man or a woman should be based on past stereotypes. Nevertheless, we each are feeling like we can be the man and the woman God has made us to be in our family, as parents, in our church, and in the world. And I'm very grateful to God for that.